Welcome to episode 29. This one's titled The Biography Police. And what prompted this podcast was a message on Facebook um, from a friend of mine who wrote as following. Stand by for a message from Steve Wasserman who as a literary agent may have repped a biographer or two, can't recall. He did edit some when in that capacity at Hill and Wang and Yale University Press. He is speaking of Stephen Phillips's biography of Christopher Hitchens, which Norton contracted for some months ago. I'll have more to say about the publisher W.W. W. Norton, who published a biography my wife and I wrote, Susan Sontag, The Making of an Icon, first edition, revised and expanded uh, in an edition available from University Press of Mississippi. Again, I'll have more to say about that book because it has to do with the biography police, but also with the publisher Norton. Here's what Wasserman is saying. He's sending around this message. I can categorically state that this so-called biography by a wannabe journalist is absolutely unauthorized by both the estate of Christopher Hitchens, by his widow, Carol Blue Hitchens, and by myself, his literary agent. We are urging friends, sisters and brothers, family, comrades, not to cooperate with this man. We have read the proposal. It is coarse and reductive. We want to have nothing to do with it, and we urge others to refuse all entreaties to cooperate. Well, I've had my own dealings with Steve Wasserman. He certainly tried to shut down the Sontag biography I just mentioned. Um, He invokes the idea of authorization. Uh, He immediately attacks the biographer. If you know anything about W.W. Norton, they don't publish books by wannabes. They don't publish books... Uh, by people writing crude biographies. W.W. Norton is right at the top rank along with, say, Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux or Knopf. Any author who's published by W.W. Norton can be quite proud of, of being published by that firm. What do I mean by the biography police? Well, Steve Wasserman is one of, is the chief of, of the biography police. Uh, he takes it on himself to try to skew things for the biographer. The biography police have a long history, going back certainly to the 18th century in England. They were out trying to get Boswell. Uh, he had a, Boswell had a very bad rep among a lot of people. Um, they were concerned about Samuel Johnson, who, just as in this age, Um, would be called an icon. Uh, And there was a certain image of him, a certain idea of him. And the idea of, in a sense, undressing Johnson in a biography, and my God, Boswell was a great supporter of Johnson. He idolized Johnson, but yet he wanted to tell the truth. Really upset people. They have a lot invested in a figure. I've encountered this again and again with many of my biographical subjects. I want to read to you um, a few pages from 
A Higher Form of Cannibalism, Adventures in the Art and Politics of Biography, a book I wrote which deals in large part with what I call the biography police. Uh, Thomas Carlyle was very upset about the biography police in the 19th century, talked about biography being mealy-mouthed, that is, biographers being so cautious. Dickens's biographer, for example, uh, who was a friend of his, if you read his biography, it's worthwhile in many ways, but it's hardly a candid look at the, at the writer. So I start a chapter in chapter 14 in a higher form of cannibalism. By the way, that phrase comes from uh, Rudyard Kipling and his pejorative uh, comment on biography. What would happen if Thomas Carlyle returned to write biography in the 20th century? He did, though he called himself Richard Aldington. And the principle that you are not to say anything impolite about the work or character of a writer who has been dead 20 years destroys both honest criticism and honest biography. Why must, be, why must we be so damn mealy-mouthed? That's what Aldington wrote on August 15, 1952, to Ellen Byrd, who was helping him to research a life of T.E. Lawrence. Aldington, a survivor of the trenches in World War I, a poet who edited the important imagist periodical The Egoist, a best-selling novelist, his death of a hero recounted his horrifying experiences at the front in France, turned to biography later in his career, producing the first formidable life of D.H. Lawrence, whom he had befriended. I would call Aldington an anti-establishment biographer, in other words, one akin to myself. Although he was first married to the poet H.D., Hilda Doolittle, and certainly enjoyed a kind of renown in literary circles, he was practically a recluse by the time he turned to writing biographies. Unlike Boswell and many other biographers, Aldington was no hero worshiper. The drive to make heroes encourages a mythification of the biographical subject, and Aldington, a demoniac researcher, believed biography should be, should be a bedrock of fact, at one point, he wanted to title his biography, Lawrence of Arabia, The Man and the Facts. William Collins, his publisher, disliked the prosaic, rather flat-sounding title and suggested instead the more traditional Lawrence of Arabia, The Man and the Legend, which Aldington rejected in favor of a more apt one, Lawrence of Arabia, A Biographical Inquiry. You often call your book a biographical inquiry when people stand in your way, in your way of getting the evidence. The subtitle resulted from Aldington's belief that his effort to compose a comprehensive biography had been thwarted at every turn. The best he could do was pose the pertinent questions that someday a biographer would be able to rely on to write a complete life. Aldington began his work on T.E. Lawrence with no informed point of view. He had not read Lawrence's classic Seven Pillars of Wisdom, his account of the Arab Revolt, climaxed by his entry into Damascus in 1918 and the defeat of the Turks. Lawrence had long been a celebrated figure in British life, when in 1949 a friend of Aldington's first proposed Lawrence of Arabia as a subject likely to interest Aldington and earn him the kind of advance he needed to remain an independent literary man. The reason I'm telling the reader all these things is 
One of the things you have to consider with a biography is its provenance. Where is it coming from? Who is endorsing it? Who is standing in its way? Who doesn't want the story told? Who does want the story told and why? It is hard to exaggerate, and going back to the book, the mystique that surrounded Lawrence. He was a Mr. Kurtz who had gone native, dressing in Arab clothing, but who had triumphed as a symbol of enlightened imperialism, making sure the French did not get their filthy hands on the Middle East while liberating a people from Ottoman despotism. Even better, Lawrence seemed to have transcended the Yatesian dilemma, whether man should opt for perfection of his life or his art. Lawrence, apparently, did not have to choose. He produced a literary masterpiece, and life itself had the con his life had the contours of a work of art. Aldi didn't approach the T.E. Lawrence myth as an agnostic, bemused by the admiring biographies that Robert Graves and Basil Little Hart had published, and keen to ascertain the basis of their enthusiasm. In less than a year's research, a crack biographer can usually get to the heart of a subject in six months. That's my feeling. Aldington began to suspect that Lawrence was a fraud. The biographer scorned Lawrence's self-aggrandizing memoirs and efforts of his disciples to defend him. Aldington was diffusing the aura of a national hero around whom a literary cult had formed, but whose persona had also been highly burnished by the press and prominent political figures including Winston Churchill, soon to become prime minister once again. Well, I go on to talk about what trouble Aldington got, how many people tried to stop him. One of his opponents, I'm skipping ahead in this chapter, Eric Kennington wrote to Basil Little Hart, Aldington's chief antagonist, I think you know Aldington has put the Lawrence book in his who's who list as the book Winston Churchill and others tried to suppress. Like today's quick reaction teams, Little Hart had his talking points. A list of criticisms he sent to Aldington's publisher and to prospective reviewers. A military historian, Little Hart set up what Crawford calls, Crawford writes about this controversy, Crawford calls the center of intelligence and operations for the anti-Aldington forces. This is no hyperbole. Little Hart would hound Aldington to the day of publication and even afterward. Keep in mind the even afterward. When I get to talking about the biography my wife and I wrote about Susan Sontag, it isn't just that the biography police will try to stop a book uh, trash a book once it's published, but even afterward, they're still at it, as I will show in, a, in, a, in due course. Hold on to that thought. Little Hart would hound Aldington to the day of publication and even afterward. After all, Aldington had gone a long way <clears throat> toward exposing Little Hart's own bogus T.E. Lawrence biography. Aldington understood that these men would rush to save T.E. Lawrence from the disgrace of me. Wonderful phrase, the disgrace of me. That's what the biographer becomes once the biography police get started. You, the unauthorized biographer, biographer become 
a disgrace. Both Little Hart and Robert Graves <clears throat> were in a perilous position, having admitted to each other that T.E. Lawrence had written portions of their books and that they had been disturbed by many discrepancies in their subjects' accounts of his heroic behavior. It became imperative to discredit Aldington. Both Liddell Hart and Graves stood to profit monetarily as well, the former having sold the movie rights to his T.E. Lawrence biography and T.E. Lawrence having provided financial assistance to the latter, that is to Robert Graves. Such is the world of mixed motives for both biographers and subjects, while Lowell Thomas, who's another figure in this whole story, would deplore Aldington's biography in public, Thomas, a celebrated figure in his time. Here is what he wrote in private, and this is what Lowell Thomas wrote to Liddell Hart. Alas, I guess I was young, rather naive, and took him, T.E. Lawrence, too literally. At any rate, the yarns that were told were far from true, although I did make several mistakes which have bothered me down through the years. They make these mistakes, but they want to cover them up when the unauthorized biographer comes along. Now I want to go to an account uh, which is given in Susan Sontag, The Making of an, uh, of an Icon, the revised and updated edition. You won't find this in the first edition because it deals with, with um, the biography police in ways that my wife and I, when we were writing, publishing the book in 2000, were not aware of. That is, we knew there was opposition to our book, but we didn't know how strenuous it was, how slanderous it was. We became part of Sontag's biography in a way. I discovered this when I got access to her archive at UCLA, and she had a whole file uh, on me and uh, my wife, Lisa Paddock. Uh, I'm reading here from page 293, beginning at page 293 in the Susan Sontag revised, The Making of an Icon, revised and expanded University Press in Mississippi. It came as an astounding disruption of her very literary life when the two of us wrote to Sontag in March 1996, announcing that we had obtained a contract from, wait for it, W.W. Norton, the same one that's doing the Christopher Hitchens biography. We reminded her, Sontag, of the time we met her at a literary conference in Warsaw. We explained why the time is right for a biography of you. We singled out her role as public intellectual, her independence and freedom from academic sectarianism, her landmark essays and innovative novels, and the need to write a full-scale life. There were only two introductory books that hardly did justice to her evolving sensibility, which can only be essayed in a biography. This is what we wrote to her. We did not count on her cooperation when proposing the biography to our publisher, but we knew we would obviously profit from a meeting with her not only to gather information, but to help us evaluate what we learn from other sources. We conceded that the biography of a living figure cannot be definitive, but we added, what biography can ever be definitive anyway? Instead, we wanted to establish a ground on which other biographers and critics can build. We quoted Herbert Butterfield and the importance of first biographies that capture materials otherwise lost to history. We also quoted a phrase from Carl's biography of Norman Mailer. 
quoting from the Mailer biography. Sometimes one can, with a pen, get a purchase on the future. End of quote. We ended our letter by offering to send Sontag uh, copies of our publications and saying we looked forward to hearing from her. Nothing in Sontag's experience or understanding prepared her for such an approach, coming from so far outside her range of acquaintance. Nothing in her comprehension of literature allowed for even the slightest acknowledgement of biography as a respectable, let alone desirable, genre. She summarized her views in her letter, refusing an interview to Greg Johnson, Joyce Carol Oates's authorized biographer. She's writing here to the biographer. I got this from her archive. This has nothing to do with your distinguished subjects. It is because I don't see the necessity of biographies of living authors. Don't like to gossip or make public the private knowledge I have of my friends and acquaintances, and don't think my opinions or ratings of my contemporaries is of much interest. Now, I don't put this in, in uh, the Sontag biography because it would be too, too much. Um, but I just want to mention that when I was doing my unauthorized biography of Lillian Hellman, who was not alive when I was writing it, Several of her friends would not speak to me, several did, but several did not because she had asked them not to speak to biography, biographers except her authorized biographer. She requested the poet Richard Wilbur not to talk to a biographer, and he was insulted. As he said to me when I interviewed him, you know, um, my friendship with Lillian Hellman is part of my experience. How dare she tell me who I can talk to? It's surprising to me that, that not more people in the literary world take that view. Someone befriends you, you befriend someone, what does that mean? It's put under lock and key? For God's sakes. Well, Sontag did not reply to our correspondence. We wrote another note to her, enclosing our original letter and expressing the hope she would find the time to reply. She did not. Instead, on September 12, 1996, her agent Andrew Wiley wrote us to say that she had asked him to write on her behalf. He reported that they were intrigued, that's his word, with the idea of a biography, but that because she was writing a new novel, she did not then have time for an interview. This is a very cagey letter. She, she, you know, she had no intention of ever speaking to us. But this is her agent, Andrew Wiley. For future reference, this is, he says this in his letter, he wanted to know more about, and he puts, this is his word, our approach. The approach we would use and how long we expected to work on the book. He looked forward to hearing from us. After consulting with our editor, who at that point was um, uh, a W.W. W. Norton uh, editor who, la who later moved on to Doubleday, Jerry Howard is his name. We replied to, the, to Andrew Wiley's letter. As with our other biographies of living figures we have worked on, our approach, proposed sources, and even the amount of time we spend on this project will depend in part on the subject's availability for an interview. Well, Wiley did not reply to this repost. But he had already consulted with a lawyer even before we sent our first letter to Sontag. On January 7th, 1996, now I didn't know this till I looked at archives, at Sontag's archive, which wasn't available 
in the 90s. It only became available for the revised and expanded edition. Wiley wrote to Russell E. Brooks at Milbank, Tweed, Hadley, and McCloy, a white shoe Manhattan uh, law firm, that as an independent publishing house, W.W. Norton had limited resources. He suspected that as a quite traditional and even a bit stuffy publisher, Norton would want to avoid an arduous legal entanglement. You see what he thinks of Norton. Norton does not write, as Wasserman said, does not publish, rather, uh, crude biographies. They, they publish responsible work, for God's sakes. He suspected that as a quite traditional and even a bit stuffy publisher, Norton would want to avoid an arduous legal entanglement. I would like them to feel that this was in store for them, if you agree. It became apparent that we, as well as Norton, which had taken out a libel insurance policy, were undeterred by Sontag's uncooperative silence. And on January 10, 1997, Donald S. Lamb, chairman of W.W. Norton, received a letter from Russell E. Brooks, the guy that uh, Wiley, the agent, had written to, of Milbank Tweed, Brooks stated that we were unknown to Ms. Sontag and that she had no reason to believe we were qualified to write such a biography. He expressed concern that Sontag's privacy and the privacy of her friends would be violated in a book that aimed to provoke controversy. The letter put the publisher on notice, the lawyer's words. Their book would be scrutinized and Sontag's rights would be meticulously defended. On January 29, a Norton vice president responded saying, this is to the lawyers, Sontag's lawyers, we and the authors intend to do a responsible job of publishing the work. All right. Sontag continued to thwart us, for example, insisting that the pen minutes, she was president of pen, dating from the period of her presidency, be made inaccessible to us, even though, as it turned out, a good portion of the minutes were already available in a Princeton University archive. Thomas Fleming, a former president of Penn, was aghast at Sontag's actions. I'm quoting him here. We are an organization that stands for freedom to write and free access to information, and we're defenders of the First Amendment. We try to strike down censorship. The principle is so glaringly obvious. End of quote. Meanwhile, Sontag continued through surrogates, to put intense pressure on Norton to send out, to send her, to send her our manuscript. She wanted to look at what we wrote. In December 1999, now this is amazing. Martin Garbus, a noted attorney specializing in the First Amendment, called Norton requesting a copy of the manuscript. Norton declined to do so, but promised Garbus that he would receive the galleys at the same time they were distributed to reviewers. Garbus then put pressure on our agents, but made no headway with them. He called them up, tried to get the book from them, and they said no. Then Roger Strauss called Starling Lawrence, a novelist under Ferrer, Strauss, and Giroux contract, and also an editor at Norton. Roger Strauss, who was then the, the head of FSG, when Lawrence, uh, and he, he said, uh, and this was reported in The New Yorker, 
a profile of Strauss later reported that he told Lawrence, apropos of our Sontag biography, direct quote here, kill the fucker. When Lawrence did not do so, Strauss promptly dropped Lawrence's forthcoming novel from the Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux list, and according to Boris Kachka, who's written a history of Ferris Strauss, also urged Andrew Wiley to drop Lawrence as a client. The Biography Police. Stories about the conflict, emphasizing the effort to suppress our biography, appeared in the New York Observer, the New York Times, the New Criterion, and other publications and resulted in an interregnum during which we continued our work. And Sontag fumed over our activities. To poet John Hollander, she confided, they've even written twice to a nice young man who used to clean my apartment 10 years ago, who read me their second letter over the phone. Carl, me, the author of a biography of Rebecca West, had interviewed West's hairdresser and believed in speaking with anyone who had interactions with his subjects. To Andrew Wiley, Sontag deplored the work of any biographer who did not seek her approval precisely what no self-respecting independent biographer would want to do. But to Sontag, we were rogue biographers who specialized in doing unauthorized biographies. Everybody from Marilyn Monroe and Mohammed Ali, she misspelled Mohammed, to lots of writers. Although Ali had not been one of my subjects, she repeated her statement to Chip Delaney, who had described an encounter he had with me, Carl, you know, Carl in the text. Delaney, by the way, is a very well-regarded writer, especially for his science fiction. Delaney spoke up for me. Sontag responded, you thought he was nice. Maybe he is or was to you. Unlike her other friends, Delaney did not immediately acquiesce, repeating his impression that Carl was a highly intelligent man, well-spoken, and quite sincere. I'm getting all this from Sontag's archive, who had made a careful study of Sontag's work. In fact, Carl and Delaney engaged in an extensive correspondence, disagreeing about some aspects of biography, but there was no room for nuance in Sontag's outrage. I had had quite an extensive uh, correspondence with Delaney, not, not simply about Sontag, but about the nature of biography. Well, here's what happened next. The Sontag circle closed ranks with Stephen Koch assuring Sontag that Carl's previous work was, I quote, use his word, worthless. Christopher Hitchens, remember Christopher Hitchens, about whom now there's going to be a biography written? Christopher Hitchens had fun referencing his letter, I'm quoting him, from Rollison and Paddock, which turns out not to be a firm of Dickensian solicitors. End of quote. With her permission, as Hitchens was willing to talk about certain matters like Sarajevo, where she had spent time. But he added, I would naturally have kept quiet about, and he puts it in quotation marks, the circle. That circle is, among other things, the biography police. Sontag urged Hitchens to read a recent New York Times article about unauthorized biographers of living figures, including us. Do read to the end. This is Sontag writing to Hitchens. I see a divorce in this couple's future. He thinks, she thinks Lisa and I are going to get a divorce. Well, it still hasn't happened. Or am I just 
being, she says here, as always, romantic, end of quote. When Hitchens later wanted to write his own biographical profile of Sontag, you know, Christopher Hitchens, the fearless journalist, he wrote to determine what he would be allowed to say, adding, I quote, as you see, I am not Rollison, nor was meant to be. Gotta like Christopher Hitchens, end of quote. A contest seemed to develop over who would, could write the most reassuring letter while also vilifying Sontag's biographers. Here's what a Sontag friend, Ted Mooney, wrote. I trust it goes without saying that I would never have anything to do with these pepanadors, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, uh, translation garbage pickers, proposing to write a biography of you. Here's one from Ned Polsky, who I had some uh, dealings with. I told him, Carl, I told him, that is me, that I had known you intermittently since we were both teenagers, but that I couldn't talk with him about this unless I had your permission. And boy, was he pissed off. It suggested to me he did not intend to even try getting your cooperation and just wanted to dig up dirt. And finally, one from John uh, Richardson, the art historian. These awful people implied that they would give me a great review if I collaborated with them. This is what they were writing in Sontag. It's in the Sontag archive. It's in the Rollison Paddock file. As I go on to say, of course, no professional biographer would behave as Polsky reported. I wasn't pissed off. That's ridiculous. And Richardson, Picasso's biographer, knew better than to suppose that such a promise could be, could be kept, let alone offered. I would promise Richardson a good review so he would talk to me about Susan Sontag. How would that work? And who am I in terms of, I wasn't reviewing him in the New York Times book review or someplace that would matter anyway. It's just so ridiculous. But she ate this stuff up. Terry Castle's memoir in the London Review of Books, March 17, 2005, provides the most candid insight into what it was like to be inside the Sontag circle. Castle describes a figure who had lost all perspective on herself and could not help performing Susan Sontag. All right, that's all I'm going to read from uh, the revised and expanded edition. But as they say in the infomercials, but wait, there's more. Uh, not so long ago, this uh, fellow Benjamin Moser wrote what was intended to be an authorized biography of Susan Sontag. Again, check out the provenance. Ferris Strauss was going to publish it. Suddenly something happened, and Harper eventually published this book. Uh, and part of the reason is because Sontag's son... David Reef objected to some of Moser's treatment. Not sure why, except to say that when you're the authorized biographer, just like the unauthorized biographer in a sense, there's no pleasing people. No matter how favorable the authorized biographer might seem to the subject, that subject's friends or sometimes family nevertheless thinks it isn't positive enough. Carolyn Heilbrunn wrote... Uh, essentially a hagiography of Gloria Steinem. When an authorized bio, unauthorized biographer came along, uh, she got some cooperation from Gloria Steinem, and I asked the unauthorized biographer, Sidney Stern, 
Why did Gloria cooperate with the Biography's unauthorized when she had such a good hagiography? And Sidney said, it wasn't hagiographical enough. Okay, back to this uh, fellow, Moser. Uh, I got the galleys, because I was obviously curious as a Sontag biographer. And here were some passages in the galleys of the Moser biography. By the way, he doesn't include the revised and uh, expanded uh, biography of Sontag in his bibliography. There's the one that Lisa and I revised and expanded. He only quotes from the first edition. There's no... He, he looked at Sontag's archive, obviously, but he, he simply didn't deal with that file, which I've quoted from in, in our own Sontag book, the file on, on Lisa and me. Here are some passages in the galleys. These are passages which Lisa and I got removed uh, when we wrote to Moser's publishers. So I'm going to be reading some things uh, to you that are not in Moser's book, that he claimed were accurate. He never dealt with us. He never called us. He never interviewed us or any of our friends. He didn't do the basic research that a biographer should do. So we wrote a letter to the publisher. And as I said, it was ultimately removed, but it took some doing. It took several phone calls with the lawyers uh, for Harper to get this stuff removed. Let me read to you what was in here that was removed from the book you can read now. This is Moser writing. Rollison and Paddock used aggressive tactics to court or badger informants. They once followed Carla, I'm not sure how she pronounces her name, E-O-F-F, from Susan's apartment to the subway and offered to pay for her cooperation. This Carla was a Sontag secretary. They hassled Roger Stone, coming to his office on Union Square and becoming so insistent that he threatened to take legal action. If you know anything about kill the fucker Roger Strauss, the idea of us walking into Ferris Strauss and badgering him is ludicrous. It's just ridiculous. And Moser put this in the book. Unbelievable. This is also what Moser wrote. These awful people imply that they would give me a good review if I collaborated with them, the art historian John Richardson wrote. Just absurd. So we go on to say in the letter, we did not do this. That is any of it that's in, that was in Moser's book. We never offered to pay anyone, period. We never followed EOFF or badgered Strauss. We did write to him, that's all. We never even visited Ferris Strauss offices. To this day, I've never been in the publisher's offices. The Richardson statement is preposterous. No offer was made to give him a good review. I actually did give a good review, but this was years before I did the Sontag biography because I am an admirer of Richardson's Picasso biography. That had nothing to do with the Sontag biography. No offer was made to give him a good review. The Moser account is pure fiction. Not a word of it is true. And what I'm saying is I'm not talking about, you know, he said, she said, about some kind of incident. I'm talking about people actually at Ferris Strauss making up things about the biographers that did not happen at all. Now, we're talking about people 
that are still after us, in a sense, 20 years after the first edition of Susan Sontag, The Making of an Icon, was published. You better believe it. The biography police exist. Thanks for listening.